Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. All right, how are we doing? Well, my name is Todd. I am one of the pastors here at Summit Church, and I just want to say welcome. If you're a guest with us today, we are so glad that you are here with us. also want to welcome our online audience. Uh, no matter where you are or where you're watching from, thank you for being with us. And if you guys could all help me out, and let's give a big shout out to Blairsville. Summit Blairsville, we love you. Uh, I also want to let you know that this morning's weather is brought to you by the fall of man. So thank you, Adam and Eve, for that. It's evidence of sin, I'm telling you. Uh, but no, we are continuing our series today, Holier Than Thou. Uh, I think that was probably obvious, but I'll go ahead and mention the obvious. Anyway, we are continuing our series, Holier Than Thou. And uh, there were a couple of resources that I wanted to mention to you. Last week, Pastor Mel mentioned the book, Holier Than Thou, by Jackie Hill Perry. It's where we uh, stole the title of the series from, Uh, but it's an excellent book. Uh, You should check it out. And then also, I want to recommend to you a book by Timothy Keller called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, And that one actually will be particularly... um, well, particularly relates to what we're talking about today. Because today we're going to be talking about unholy gods. Uh, you know, last week, Pastor Mel mentioned that in, in the throne room of heaven, Scripture says that they are continually saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we talked about how that in Scripture, whenever a word is repeated like that, it's repeated for emphasis. In fact, Jesus would do this. You'll see it oftentimes when Jesus is teaching. He'll say, truly, truly. Or if you, if you grew up reading the King James Version like I did, verily, verily. right? And he does that because he's indicating an emphasis. He's saying, hey, pay attention here. What I'm about to say is really important. And so that's what we see as they are gathered around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That there is an emphasis that is placed there. There is an importance on this aspect of who God is. In fact, we talked about the fact that it is the preeminent characteristic of God and that every other characteristic of God, every other aspect of who he is flows from this one truth, that God is holy. And so it's really important for us to understand what it means for God to be holy, for see, to see him in the light of his holiness, or as the word of God says, in the beauty of his holiness. His holiness is beautiful, and it's important for us to see and understand the holiness of God because it is within that framework, it's within that understanding that every other thing that competes for our affection and our attentions, that competes for our worship, it's in the light of his holiness that those things become exposed for what they are and God begins to strip them away in our lives so that he alone remains as 
the object of our worship and the chief affection of our heart. But our tendency is to place our faith in other things, to place our hope in other things or people or uh, and we'll unpack some more of that as we go along. Let's, let's open the Word of God together because we're not alone in that tendency. Let's look at Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. Exodus 32, 1 through 8. It says, When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. And then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. I want to pause there for a second, because it's really interesting. When you see the word Lord, and it's not all caps here, but when you see the word Lord in your, in your Bible, this will be all capitals. And what that means is he says, tomorrow will be a festival to Yahweh. Right? To the Lord. To God. And yet, they're looking at a golden calf. You see, they've placed their affection on something that cannot sustain and that cannot support and that cannot save. And then they ascribe God's name to it. Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. So the people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. And the Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I always find this really funny. Um, you ever, like, if you're a parent and your kids are acting up, you ever look at your husband or look at your wife and go, hey, your kids... That's what God does to Moses here, right? It's like, hey, Moses, you're people. Anyway, I find that very funny. Uh, so your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf. and They have bowed down to sacrifice to it. And they are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now this is, if we take this text in isolation, we don't really understand all that's going on here. And so I wanna, I wanna point out three things that I think are prescriptive for us in regard to our tendency to build idols in our own hearts. Number one, the people of Israel were forgetful. They were forgetful. You see, there were a lot of things that led up to this moment when they were camped at the base of Mount Sinai. 
And Moses had gone up onto the mountain to speak with God, and he hadn't returned yet. He had been gone for a while. In fact, the scriptures say that he spent 40 days at the top of the mountain with the Lord. And the people were waiting for him to return, and it had been a while. And they're getting a little nervous about this. And they began to forget what God had done to bring them to the place that they were. If you look back over the course of the book of Exodus, this story about God's deliverance of his people. They had been slaves in Egypt, slaves under Pharaoh, and God had delivered them miraculously from their slavery and from their bondage. He had sent the plagues on Egypt and he had protected his people from the effects of those plagues. And the people of Egypt had actually given them their treasures and said, just get out of here. And, uh, and so Pharaoh's heart turned and he allowed them to go. And then they were pursued by the Egyptian army and they came to the edge of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was at their back and the Red Sea was at their front and God parted the waters of the Red Sea and they crossed over on dry ground ground and then God allowed the waters to come back and drown the Egyptian army. Then they wandered through the wilderness and during that time God gave them water from a rock and literally gave them food from the sky. And the Bible says that not even their sandals or their cloaks wore out over the course of this time, wandering in the desert, in the wilderness. And so all of that leads them to this place where they are. And by the way, they were led there by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the presence of God literally going before them as they travel through the wilderness and it leads them to the mountain. And then the presence of God hovers over the top of the mountain. And Moses is going back and forth between the camp and the presence of the Lord. And he's carrying the message that God is bringing to the people. And it's an interesting thing. I always had this picture in my mind that Moses brought the tablets down from the mountain and that he read them, you know, just like in uh, the movie. And, the, and then, you know, he reads them and he gets upset at the people and throws them down and breaks them. But if you look at Exodus chapter 20, Moses had been up the mountain a couple of times and had come back down and delivered a message to the people and said, you know, God wants to make a covenant with you and here are the terms of the covenant and the people all with one voice say, yes, that is what we want to do. We want to be God's people, Yahweh's people, and he will be our God. And Moses says to them, Okay, the Lord is going to speak. And in Exodus chapter 20, when we, when we see the list of the Ten Commandments, if I'm reading it right, God himself is speaking this to the people. And it, the Bible says that there is thunder and there is lightning and the people are afraid. So God speaks these commands to his people. They all are standing there and they hear the voice of God and they are frightened by it. And so then they tell Moses, we don't want that anymore. You go talk to God and then you come and tell us what he has to say because we're going to die if he speaks again. I'm saying, I'm saying all of that to say this. 
God had done incredible, miraculous things to bring them to the place that they were. And yet, when Moses is gone for longer than they think he ought to be, they begin to forget what God has done because their eyes are on the circumstance rather than on the God who brought them there. And we have that same tendency in our hearts when we face difficult circumstances. Or can we be honest? Sometimes it's our comfort that causes us to turn our eyes away from God. And we begin to trust in the comfort of a moment. Or we are, you know, and so we begin, we forget what God has done and we forget to give Him the honor and the glory that He is due because we place our eyes on something else. Something other than him, a, a circumstance or a situation or another thing that we're trusting in. We have a steady income and so we feel comfortable in that. And so then we take our eyes off of the Lord and we begin to trust in that thing. Or we find ourselves, how many, how often have we seen people who will get into a relationship with someone and, and then they're looking at that other person to satisfy the longings of their soul and their needs. And so then they begin to pull away from fellowship with God and from fellowship with God's people and all of a sudden you don't see them at church because they've placed their eyes on something else and begin to forget what God has done. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is talking about the way that we ought to grow and progress in our faith. And he says that when we're not growing and progressing in that way, it's because we have become nearsighted and blind and have forgotten what Christ has done for us. So the people of God were forgetful. It was only just a few chapters before that God himself had spoken and said, you must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. So they were forgetful. They were afraid. They were afraid. You see, fear is rooted in what we cannot control. I don't know if any of you or how many of you are like me. You have children who are old enough to drive. Yeah. You, you giggle right now because you understand that there's a fear that's rooted in what I can't control. Right? But you give them those keys and they go out of the driveway. Dear Jesus, protect them, right? Because fear is rooted in what we can't control. And our tendency is to try and control things. And so that's exactly what the Israelites do in this moment. They are afraid because Moses hasn't returned yet, which, by the way, reveals that their trust and their faith and their hope was actually in Moses and not in the Lord. 
And so they become fearful because the man that they've placed their trust in is gone and they don't know if he will return. And so they become afraid. And so they do exactly what we do when we react out of fear is that they begin to do things that they believe they can control. They begin to do things in their own strength, in their own ability, out of their own understanding that they feel like will give them some control in this moment. And so they go to Moses and they say, make a God for us. Give us something we can see. Give us something we can hold on to. Give us something we can control. So we, like them, will fashion God into our image. Because we're afraid. You know, it's interesting, the most often repeated command in all of Scripture is don't be afraid so they were forgetful and they were afraid number three they were impatient their fear began to manifest itself in impatience they were unwilling to wait any longer for Moses to come down from the mountain they were unwilling to wait on God to wait on what they could not presently see or hold So their response was to make a God that they could control, to hope in a God that they could see. Listen to this quote from Jackie Hill Perry. She said this, the first evidence that their hope was an unholy one was made plain by their own words, make and God's. These two words should have gotten caught in their throat, followed by a cough, a sneeze, a hiccup, or some bodily reaction to show how ridiculous they were being. By definition, a real God can't be made. A real God makes. Psalm 106, verses 20 and 21 says, They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done such great things in Egypt. Guys, this is true for all of us. Timothy Keller talks about it in these terms. He says that if we will look at where our deepest fears lie, that we will find near to them what, we, what is functioning as our Savior. He uses that language, functional saviors. And our hearts are factories that produce idols in this way. If I'm transparent, if I'm honest with you today, like an idol for me, if I allow it to become one, is your approval of me. I really want you to like me. And that can become a God for me. Because I'll build a shrine in my heart to it. And if I feel like you're disappointed in me, or if I feel like that there's some kind of conflict between you and me, I will go to great lengths to try to resolve that conflict. And not just because I want Christ to be glorified, but because there's something in me that feels like that I'm missing something, that there is some deficit in me if there is... And we... in. We invent these things. We, we build these things in our hearts. Pastor Mel talks about it in these terms. He often says it's when we make a good thing an ultimate thing or a supreme thing. 
You see, idolatry always involves an exchange. We trade what is holy for what is profane. We trade what is unique for what is common. We trade what is transcendent for what is temporary. We trade what is limitless for what is finite. Our idols obviously are a little more subtle than a golden calf. I doubt if I were to go home with you today that there's a golden calf that you've built a shrine to in your house. We build shrines in our hearts. That's why in 1 John 5, 21, the writer said, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. So I'll ask you today, what is it that you fear the most? What, if you lost it, would make life not worth living? What do you make sacrifices to? And I don't mean that that you sacrifice to work for your family or you give sacrificially to someone in need. That's generosity. That's not what we're talking about. What I mean when I ask you what you're sacrificing to is this. What thing or things do you make justification for in your life? What are you willing to compromise yourself for? What habit or character trait do you make allowances for or make excuses for? Or what do you believe will protect you when difficulty comes? Timothy Keller, in his book Counterfeit Gods, said this. He said, English minister David Clarkson preached one of the most comprehensive and searching sermons on counterfeit gods ever written. About idolatry, he said, though few will own it, nothing is more common. So what he's saying there is we may not own up to it, but all of us have idols. Though few will own it, nothing is more common. If we think of our soul as a house, he said, idols are set up in every room, in every faculty. We prefer our own wisdom to God's wisdom, our own desires to God's will and our own reputation to God's honor. Clarkson looked at human relationships and showed how we have a tendency to make them more influential and important to us than God. In fact, he said that many make even their enemies a God when they are more troubled, disquieted, and perplexed at the apprehensions of danger to their liberty, estates, and lives from men than they are concerned about God's displeasure. I don't know about you, but that sounds really, really familiar right now. Right? The idols that we build, whatever side of the political aisle you find yourself on, right? If you, if you, <laughs> if you sink into despair when your candidate loses... Or you think that somehow God's more in control if your candidate wins? The human heart is indeed a factory that mass produces idols. 
You see, in this exchange, God calls us to an exchange as well. He calls us to lay aside our pride, our preferences, our power, our performance, our peccadilloes, our pet peeves, our privileges, our positions, our accomplishments, our accolades, our advancement, the applause of men, affluence, our aptitude. In Romans 125, the Apostle Paul said, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Again, to quote Timothy Keller, he said, if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. And can I tell you this morning that that is why God forbids idol worship. You see, it's not because he's egotistical or insecure. God doesn't need to be reminded about how great he is or need to be worshipped so that he might feel better about himself. God commands us to worship him and him alone because he cares for us. It's because of his great love for us. And it's because he knows that every other thing or person that we place our hope in or look to for validation, for salvation, for identity, or for rescue will ultimately let us down. And yet, time and again, we find ourselves in that place where we have expected of a finite human being or a resource that will run out or something that will, you know, things that will ultimately fail and let us down. Like, I... I, I, I work really hard at being a good husband. I want to love my wife well, right? My command from Scripture is that I would love her in the way that Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. And I want to be a husband like that. But if Jennifer's expectation is that I can satisfy the deep longing of her soul, that I can function for her in a way that only God can function, I will let her down. Or if you're trusting in your job or the approval of others or your health or whatever. I mean, there's a whole list of things. We make idols out of all kinds of things. And this is the truth for all of us. This is the situation for all of us. There's no condemnation here. 
There's simply a call for us to recognize the, the beauty and the wonder and the glory of our holy God and not be willing to settle for an unholy God, not be willing to settle for a God who cannot satisfy, a God who cannot hear, a God who cannot answer prayer, a God who cannot heal, a God who cannot save, a God who cannot respond. And over and over again, this language that they use in Scripture, they, there's this term, this worthless idols or powerless gods or the, the root word in Hebrew that they use for worthless, it, it references dung. And so they're saying that's what it's worth when we place our trust in other things. They will always let us down. And any other master will always require something from you. Jesus is the only Lord who gives. God alone is the only one who can stand up under the weight of our hopes and our dreams and our sorrows and our disappointments. He alone never fails. So he commands us to worship him, not because he needs for us to worship him, but because we need to worship him. We need to set our eyes on him so that we might see his beauty and his wonder and his glory and in doing so turn away from the other things that we may trust in, the things that will ultimately disappoint us. You see, everything in this earth will pass away. Everything that we now have will be gone. There will come a time when you and I stand before the creator of the universe and he alone will remain. So we set our eyes on Jesus. And so I want to finish up this morning by talking to you about what makes God holy. And my hope and my desire, Pastor Mel said last week, right, that he felt like his job was to help us to see the goodness of God. And I feel the same this morning. I want to begin to enumerate for you some of the things that make God holy so that we might see him for who he is and so that the things that we trust in will begin to lose their luster and lose their appeal and their attraction to us so that Jesus might be preeminent in our thoughts and in our hearts and in our affections. So what makes God holy? Number one, God is separate. That means that God is unlike us. He is unique to himself. He is in a category all his own. give you some examples of God's uniqueness. These are some things that make God unique. His eternality. So what I mean by that is that God is eternal. He is without beginning or end. He exists outside of time. He is, he was, and he forever will be. He is unique in his aseity. That's just a fancy word that means this. God is uncreated. His existence isn't derived from or dependent on anything or anyone else. There's no one like him. He is unique in his simplicity. God is not the sum of parts. He is indivisible. God is all that God is all the time. You cannot reduce him. You cannot change him. He is singular God, always God. 
He is unique in his triunity. God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing eternally as one God, and they cannot be separated. He is unique in his omniscience. All things are known to God from all eternity to all eternity. God does not learn. God knows. God is unique in his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. For God, nothing is strenuous. Nothing is tiring. And nothing is beyond his ability. I hope that you're seeing the beauty of our God this morning. God is unique in his omnipresence. God in his fullness is fully present everywhere at once. He is fully present to you and me right now in this moment. And he is fully present on the other side of this planet right now to someone who's calling on his name. So God is separate. He is unique. He is in a category on all his own. Number two, God is transcendent. Every individual aspect of who God is is so uniquely glorious that it cannot be fully measured or comprehended. He is beyond the limits and borders of every other thing. He is greater in every way than anyone or anything else. He's transcendent in his goodness. The goodness of God is greater and higher than all goodness. It is the source of all goodness. He is transcendent in his creativity. The creativity of God is incalculable in its scope, its specificity, its grandeur, its complexity, and its perfection. He is transcendent in his wisdom. The wisdom of God is supreme, only and always doing that which is impeccable. He is transcendent in his knowledge. The knowledge of God is complete. Everything that is or was or ever will be is open and bare before the face of God, fully known from all of eternity. He's transcendent in his authority. The authority of God is without equal or rival or hindrance. Whatever God wills is done. In his counsel, in his righteousness, in his justice, in his faithfulness, in his compassion, in his mercy, and in his grace. He is transcendent in every way. The grace of God renews the irreparable. It salvages the unsalvageable. It grants eternal life with God to sinners who only ever deserved his wrath. There is no one like him. God is pure. He is impeccable. He is perfect. He is faultless. Every aspect of God's being is altogether perfect in every way. That is a God who's worth worshiping. That is a God that is worth serving. That is a God that is worthy of our devotion. That is a God who can be trusted. That is a God who never fails. 
And so he calls for us to see him in the beauty of his holiness, to know him in the perfection of his splendor so that we might turn away from every other pretender to the throne, every other false god, every other thing that will ultimately leave us disheartened and disappointed, every other god that will ultimately lay you down, every other thing that will compete for your his affection and his place on the throne of your heart. His desire for you is that you might see his beauty so that those things would not bring pain and destruction into your life. Scripture says that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God's call to you and me that we lay aside every other God and and focus our hearts solely on him is so that we might know joy, so that we might know life, so that we might overcome the world even as he has overcome the world. And in doing so, we might be a reflection of his glory and his beauty and his holiness to the world around us so that others then may come to know life, so that others then may experience what it means to be set free from the bondage and the oppression of false saviors and find the life and the liberty that only comes in Christ Jesus. And the beauty and the wonder and the amazing thing today is that when we set our eyes on this holy God, when we consider That this separate, transcendent, pure, and perfect, holy God, because of his great love for us, set aside his glory and came and walked among us, experienced the pain and the, the disappointments of life. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He was nailed to a cross so that he might die in our place for our sins. There is no one else like him. Every other pretender to the throne, every other thing or person, that might try to exalt themselves and call themselves God will not and has not and cannot do for us what Jesus has done. Only a holy God is enough for you and for me. Only a holy God can wash away our sins, can restore relationship to the Father, can mend and repair what for us is impossible. And so can I tell you today that it is good news for you and for me that we have a holy God. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So my question for us this morning is, have we settled for an unholy God? Have we settled for an unholy God? Have we settled for less than what God has offered to us and what God has purposed and intended for us? I just want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and I want to give you an opportunity to respond today. So right now I'm going to turn it over to our hosts in Blairsville and they're going to close out this message there and give you an opportunity to respond as well. I want you to know that I love you and it is my honor to serve as one of your pastors. So I want to ask you today, while your head is bowed and while your eyes are closed and it's just you and the Lord, much, much of the journey of faith, much of our Christian life is about this thing. It's about God by his kindness and mercy through the Holy Spirit illuminating for us the unholy gods that we've placed our trust in. The places and areas of our heart, the corners of our lives that, that we've not yet surrendered to him. It's his kindness and his mercy toward us that reveals the beauty of his holiness and the glory of who he is so that we might realize that nothing else is worthy. No one else is worthy. Nothing else compares to him. And so I want you to ask yourself this morning, and I want you to ask the Lord to reveal, say, God, what is it that's in my heart that's competing for my affections? What is it, Lord, that I trust in or turn to when I'm afraid or when tragedy comes? Or, God, have I worshipped comfort rather than you? I believe this morning one of the ways that you can begin to identify where those idols are is this. If there's a good thing in your life and that thing functions to turn your eyes toward God in thanksgiving and in gratitude, then it's in its proper place. But if your affections terminate on that thing and the removal of that thing would then cause you either to be angry at God or to turn away from him, then it's an idol. So ask the Lord to reveal it today. What is it, God, that I need to surrender to you? What is it that I need to lay down at your feet? What God, what idol do I need to allow you to tear down in my heart? And maybe for some of you this morning, this, this is the very first time that you've been confronted with this truth. And you realize today that you've not placed your faith in Jesus. That you've been running after other gods. And today, 
God in his kindness and in his mercy is calling out to you and saying, trust in me. And so if that's you, if you'd say, Todd, I'm not a follower of Jesus today. I'm not a Christian. But today I want to start a brand new life with Christ. If that's you, if you would just raise your hand and let me see you wherever you are. I'm not going to call you to the front. I'm not going to try to embarrass you in any way. I want to be able to pray with you today. So if that's you, if you'd raise your hand and say, Todd, today is the day I want to give my life to Christ. I want to place my trust in that holy God that you talked about. He gave himself for you. I see you up in the balcony. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? So here's what I'd like to do. I want to ask everyone in the room, and maybe you're watching online, would you join with us? We're going to pray. I want everyone to pray along with this one that raised their hand. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for giving yourself for me. Lord, you are holy, and you are worthy of my praise. So today, I give my life to you. Forgive me of my sins. Be the Lord of my life. From this day forward, help me to run after you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Come on, give the Lord some praise this morning. The scriptures say that if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. So if you pray that prayer today and you meant it from the depths of your heart, I want you to know that you are God's child today, that you are saved today, that a holy God has made a way for you. The Bible also says that when one sinner comes to repentance, that all of heaven rejoices. So right now in heaven, there's a party for you. That's good news. Amen. So if that was you today, if, if you raised your hand or even if you didn't, if you're joining us online and you prayed that prayer and you know that today is your day, I want you to do me a favor. Text the word Summit PA to the number 94,000 and then choose the option that says salvation. Uh, we want to we partner with you. You see, when God calls us out of our old life, he also calls us into a new one. And so we want to do what we can to help you to know what it means to live life with Christ, to walk in the way and to live in the way that God prescribes for us so that you might experience the life that God has for you. And so we would love to partner with you and be a part of doing that. So text Summit PA to the number 94,000 and we'll get someone in touch with you so that we might help you begin your journey with Christ today. So here's what we're going to do now. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing one more song together. Our prayer team is going to come, and they're going to be available here at the front of the room. If you need prayer for any reason, if there's an an idol in your heart that God's revealed to you today, and you want someone to pray with you that that the Holy Spirit might tear that thing down, you might turn away from that thing, then we want to pray with you. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's an unholy affection for someone else. Whatever it might be, we want to pray with you and agree with you. If you need healing today, we want to pray with you. Whatever your need may be, our prayer team is available. And then for all of us, as we sing this song together, let's set our hearts on Jesus and say, God, whatever it may be in my life that's competing for my affections, 
whatever it might be that would take your place in my heart, God, tear it down. And Lord, don't let there be anything that I would not be willing to lay down so that I might know you more. Uh, this is my prayer for you today from Romans fifteen thirteen. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. I love you. God bless you.